From NPR News in Washington, I'm Ann Taylor. Echoing an FBI terrorist warning from last night, Attorney General John Ashcroft today called on the public to be on the highest state of alert. The FBI has warned that 16 men with possible ties to al-Qaeda may be planning an attack on targets in the United States or in Yemen. While no specific targets were given, the FBI says it received its information from prisoners held in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and in Afghanistan. A possible ringleader has been named as a Yemeni national born in 1979 in Saudi Arabia. Meanwhile, most law enforcement officials around the country say that they were already on the highest state of vigilance even before the most recent FBI alert, and reaction from the public has been mixed. NPR's Melissa Block has more on that story. At New York's Port Authority bus terminal, a bomb scare coincided with the FBI alert. It turned out to be a hoax. Commuter Michael Abramson says the threats and scares have made him more suspicious of others. I look at people in in a different way now. The same people that I would look at, I wouldn't think twice about. I now sometimes look, you know, at foreigners. In Boston, Tony Wiley says she thinks nonspecific warnings from the FBI do more harm than good. To give me, as an individual, the information that somebody said that there might be something happening on foreign soil, what does that really do for me? It's kind of, it it gives them an out to be able to say, see, we told you something was about to happen. And a spokesman for the Los Angeles Police Department remarked, how much higher can we go? We're already on the highest alert. Melissa Block, NPR News. In Pakistan, police say that they've arrested the prime suspect in the kidnapping of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. NPR's Michael Sullivan reports from Islamabad. Police say Ahmad Omar Saeed Sheikh was arrested this morning in the eastern city of Lahore and that he told them that Daniel Pearl is alive and in Karachi. Pearl had been investigating possible links between al-Qaeda and alleged shoe bomber Richard Reed when he disappeared in Karachi three weeks ago. Saeed, or Sheikh Omar as he's more commonly known, spent five years in an Indian jail for kidnapping four people, three British citizens and one American, in 1994. He was released two years ago in exchange for the passengers and crew of an Indian airliner hijacked to the southern Afghan city of Kandahar. His arrest comes a day before Pakistan's President General Pervez Musharraf is scheduled to meet President Bush in Washington. Michael Sullivan, NPR News, Islamabad. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrials lost 21 points to close at 9,863 on volume of 1.1 billion shares. NASDAQ was down by 12 points, while the S&P 500 lost four. This is NPR News. From NPR News, it's all things considered. I'm Noah Adams. And I'm Robert Siegel. The ex-boss of Enron, Kenneth Lay, came to Capitol Hill today. To no one's surprise, he refused to answer a Senate committee's questions about Enron's collapse. But lawmakers took advantage of the occasion to profess their disgust at the company's financial dealings and disappointment at not hearing from Lay himself. NPR's Emily Harris reports. In a packed Senate Commerce hearing room on Capitol Hill, Senator Peter Fitzgerald tried to shame Lay into talking. Mr. Lay, I've concluded that you're perhaps the most accomplished confidence man since Charles Ponzi. I'd say you were a carnival barker, except that wouldn't be fair to carnival barkers. A carny will at least tell you up front that he's running a shell game. Senator Ron Wyden attempted reasoning with Lay. The fact of the matter is it's just not possible to determine why the Enron ship 
is at the bottom of the ocean unless you hear from the captain. And Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, who represents Enron's home state of Texas, suggested Lay could perhaps pick a topic or two he'd be comfortable addressing in public. I would just ask Mr. Lay to consider um, uh, talking about uh, laws that need to be changed, uh, whether it is regarding accounting procedures. Enron blamed accounting errors when it restated earnings last November. Later, it fired its former auditor, Arthur Anderson. Today, the ex-Enron leader sat quietly through 21 short senatorial speeches. He listened attentively, looked at each speaker, and occasionally appeared to nod in agreement. When Lay raised his right hand to be sworn in, dozens of camera shutters erupted in clicks. And Lay did have a little something to say. Mr. Chairman, I come here today with a profound sadness about what has happened to Enron, its current and former employees, retirees, shareholders, and other stakeholders. I have also wanted to respond. He did not, though, address concerns of fraudulent financing, dubious business deals, and insider stock trading among the many issues raised by senators. Lay said his lawyer told him to invoke his Fifth Amendment rights. I am deeply troubled about asserting these rights because it may be perceived by some that I have something to hide. But after agonizing consideration, I cannot disregard my counsel's instruction. When providing their instruction... My counsel referred me to an excerpt from a unanimous Supreme Court decision of less than a year ago. Quote, one of the Fifth Amendment's basic functions is to protect innocent men. Senators threw quotes at Lay, too, one from a speech Lay gave three years ago touting Enron's corporate ethics. There was bipartisan agreement that Enron unjustly profited from the energy crisis in the western U.S. last year and bipartisan interest in appointing one select Senate committee on Enron. Republican John Ensign concurred with a Democratic colleague that Lay had failed not just Enron, but America. Senator Kerry mentioned earlier about how we want to and we try to go into emerging markets and talk about the wonderful uh, things that it, capitalism has done for our country. Mr. Lay, you have, I believe, you bear a great deal of responsibility for shaking the confidence of us being able to export capitalism. Several laid-off Enron employees in the hearing room were disappointed their ex-boss didn't offer an apology. Former senior administrative assistant Deborah Parada told her story to a Senate panel last week. She said she has her own questions for Lay. I would ask him is what is he going to do for the employees? What can he do? Can he do anything in the courts where he can release severance package that was due us that we have not received? After Lay left today's hearing, senators quizzed Enron board member William Powers, who was brought on late last year to lead an internal investigation. The company instructed Powers to dissect several key off-books partnerships, which he did in a report released last week. Today, it became clear to the Senate Commerce Committee that Powers' report, while helpful, still leaves a lot of questions about Enron unanswered. Emily Harris, NPR News, Washington. A lot of people are asking whether what happened at Enron could also happen at other big companies. Recently, the Securities and Exchange Commission said it's investigating Global Crossing, a Bermuda-based fiber optic company that filed for bankruptcy protection last month. As NPR's Jim Zaroli reports, this case is similar to Enron in several ways. 
Like Enron, Global Crossing was a high-flying company that Wall Street loved. And like Enron, its luster ultimately proved to be an illusion. Global Crossing built underwater fiber optic lines from the United States to Europe and Asia. And like many telecom companies, it borrowed heavily to pay capital costs. Ellie Noam heads the Columbia Institute for Teleinformation. Global Crossing was entrepreneurial, and uh, they financed themselves essentially through junk bonds. Uh, which is not surprising considering that uh, uh, Gary Winnick, its um, uh, CEO and founder, came from Michael Milken's uh, junk bond shop uh, of the 1980s. But Global Crossing would eventually stumble, a victim of an oversaturated market. Noam says that with the rise of the Internet, many companies went into the fiber optic business, expecting it to be highly profitable. Eventually, however, there was overcapacity. Uh, prices uh, collapsed. Uh, People could not uh, make money, Uh, they couldn't cover costs, and they couldn't cover the debt. Because it was financed by junk bonds, Global Crossing had an especially heavy debt burden, and late last month it filed for bankruptcy protection. Normally, the bankruptcy might not have attracted inordinate attention, but a former company executive named Roy Olofsson recently went public with claims that Global Crossing had been manipulating its revenue statements. Olofsson says Global Crossing and the big telecommunications company Quest entered into a contract in which they agreed to provide each other with with access to their fiber optic networks during emergencies. He says Global Crossing booked this contract as revenue. Julia Grant is a professor of accounting at Case Western Reserve University. Really, they were exchanges in kind. They weren't going to be paid off with cash. They were going to be paid off with other services. It would be as if Ford Motor sold me a car, and in return I paid for that car by giving them back another car. In the end, they still have a car. Grant says this kind of transaction was common among dot-coms who sold each other ad space on their websites. And she says it's not clear whether Global Crossing violated generally accepted accounting principles. But it raises questions about whether Global Crossing was trying to mislead the investing public. And the SEC is now investigating the company. It's also issued subpoenas to Quest for documents related to the deal. On the surface, the case bears some similarities to Enron. As with Enron, the company's implosion has taken a toll on employee pensions. Linda McGrath is head of Local 1170 of the Communications Workers of America. The local's members used to work for Frontier Telephone and had Frontier stock in their 401ks. But McGrath says that when Frontier was bought by Global Crossing a few years ago, the shares were converted to Global Crossing stock. With Global Crossing in bankruptcy, McGrath says, many people have lost a lot of their retirement savings. They've given their life to this company. And for Global Crossing to come in here and in within three years take us right down so that we've lost everything that they've worked 30, 35 years for, they're devastated. I mean, they feel that the company just, you know, let them down completely. McGrath says some employees were allowed to trade in their company stock, but few did so because they were reassured by analysts and executives that the company's future was bright. That's another way in which Global Crossing resembles Enron. Hardly anyone saw its troubles coming until it was too late to do much about them. Jim Zeroli, NPR News, New York.